Jamstack, in some sense, is a, a solution to an organizational problem, like microservices is. And that organizational problem is that front-end developers now have more capabilities than they've ever had before, now that JavaScript is more powerful. And they finally need their own space, their own home, where they can say, this is my area where I can practice independently without having to be encumbered by the other parts of the system. And so that's, I think, why you know Jamstack has been so popular. Hey, this is Brian, and you're listening to Jamstack Radio, a bi-weekly series where we discuss the Jamstack, a new way of building websites and apps that are fast, secure, and simple to work with. Jamstack Radio is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. Welcome to another installment of Jamstack Radio. On the line, we got Ashan Anand talking to us about the evolution of the Jamstack. Sean, welcome on. Yeah, thanks for having me. A longtime listener, really excited to be here. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's awesome. Um, I guess the podcast has been around for long enough that folks who are now guests have been listening to it since the almost beginning, beginning-ish. And uh, my question to you is, like, what's your relation to the Jamstack and like what brings you on today? Yeah, so I've taken kind of a, I like to say, a convergent evolution path to the Jamstack. It gives me a different lens to look at the whole space. But just like by way of background, like I've say I've been working my way up the stack. So right out of college, I was actually doing like device drivers in the computer music industry. If you've heard of this program, Pro Tools, yep. I worked on that. Oh, well, you actually worked on the actual software Pro Tools? Yes, yes. Okay, wow. I, I mean, I've... I was a bedroom studio musician in college, uh, so I'm familiar with Pro Tools. Thank you very much for your hard work. I haven't used it in a while, so I'm not sure if I actually used it while <laughs> you were working on it, but <laughs> thank you anyway. Yeah, this was actually uh, in the early 2000s. And actually, my first one of my first projects was writing the device driver for the Mbox, which was like one yep. of the first USB recording tools they supported back when you had Firewire or USB and people were still doing PCI cards. But it was, it's a great place to work. There's like, you know, half the people there are musicians. And I was a much better engineer than a musician. So that's where I ended up. And then I, I met my co-founder and, and started doing more, you know, application programming, mobile and cloud. But the consistent theme has usually been something about performance. And, you know, I say it's a convergent evolution is a lot of folks in the Jamstack ecosystem, I feel, start with static site generators, and they're typically using them on, shall we say, smaller sites like blogs or, or marketing pages. And then what we've seen over the last few years is people trying to apply those benefits to larger sites with more pages or more frequent updates. And my Jamstack journey kind of starts at the other end, at the large complex sites. And it starts with the prior company with my co-founder, Ajay Kapoor, and it was helping very large companies, typically e-commerce sites, go mobile through a kind of server-side responsive platform. And we kind of stumbled into a lot of the underpinnings of Jamstack, but on really large sites without having to do static. And there's really like four key areas there that were really you know, signs of what the future was to come before it went off and did layer zero. So like the first one was serverless. We're doing these transformations of, of desktop sites to mobile on the server. And what do front-end developers love? They want to do it in JavaScript, which is language they already know. So we built out our own serverless platform running JavaScript on top of EC2. So this is before AWS Lambda was out. Yeah, what, what year was this uh, that you were tinkering with this? So this is 2014, 2015. Okay. We started building it before Lambda came out. 
And while we were building it, Lambda was announced. And it's actually okay. still running today. So yeah. it's like one of the oldest running pieces of serverless JavaScript. Now, there have been others actually around the same time within a year or two of us. Like, I don't know if folks remember Parse, for example. Yeah. Also was doing server-side JavaScript. So we weren't the only ones. But what was unique about ours is it was really tuned for serving web requests. And at the time, Lambda wasn't yet there. The second key thing that we we were working on is, you know, because it was the early days of mobile, phones were really slow, networks were slow. And so performance was and still is a really important part of mobile. And the value of caching at the edge was hugely important. And we actually spun up our own, you know, mini CDN with our own varnish nodes in order to get the best possible performance. But one of the really interesting lessons I got out of that is you can take a page and if it hasn't been designed to be cacheable from the beginning, it's really hard to get that engineering team to go and make it cacheable afterwards. Yeah. So to make that really concrete for like the listener, you've got like an e-commerce page and it says, welcome back, Bob, at the top. And you're like, you realize everything on this product page except the welcome back, Bob, and the cart count is cacheable. Why don't we just serve this thing from the edge? Can we pull that out so that the server doesn't give that on first load? And then we can cache the whole thing. And you just late load that. And it's a lot of work to get people to go through and do that page by page by page. But when you're building something statically, it's, I like to say, a Jedi mind trick that gets you to think about, well, how does this page going to react if it was just served from the CDN and no server was around? Yeah. And so uh, that was the second thing. And then the third and the fourth that I think were really interesting was because what we did is we were preserving, the way we had done this transformation is we preserved all the functionality. So it could still pass through and we're just changing how the front end looks in order to make a mobile version of this site. And so what we effectively had done is decoupled the front end from the back end. And it really became uh, very clear to us. I, I remember in like 2015, we had a chart and it showed one customer, their desktop team during their holiday freeze period, you know, typical large e-commerce site, they go into a, a whole freeze and they made no deploys during that time, uh, during their peak traffic season. And their mobile team, which was on our platform, did changes multiple times a day. I think it was like one change for the desktop team and 186 times for the mobile team. And they're measuring and experimenting with ways to improve the conversion funnel. And you know, one of the things we like to say is that as you go lower down the stack, it gets slower to iterate. So like making a database change is a lot more cautious and slow than when you change HTML. And when you decouple those two, you can let the HTML move a lot faster than yeah. application logic or even the database. And then the other thing that we had also stumbled into was this kind of deploy preview type workflow. We had built these things out called modes, which were originally designed so you could take, you created a mobile version of your site, a tablet version of the experience, you know, all different devices. But people started using them to just push the latest version of their code so they could show it to somebody else to preview. And it very quickly got used as like an ad hoc staging. And so we saw a lot of these same benefits that come from decoupling. We saw these benefits that come from speed, but these are already highly dynamic sites. So we kind of started at the other end of the market. And so we realized that we can take this as, you know, a key set of benefits and bring that to large e-commerce sites without having to go purely static. And so that's, that's kind of where I come from and why my perspective on the Jamstack is, I know, we call it a serverless first perspective rather than a static first perspective. Yeah. 
I mean, that's an interesting uh, sort of introduction to um, the Jamstack itself. Like, and you're also doing it pretty early around because, like, I started doing Jamstack type sites around like 2014, 2013, probably like even when I first started writing code. Yeah, I always approached it as I'm learning the front end. I'm gonna forget about the back end. Yep. And I think as like a lot of bootcamp students say, you they can attest to like their separation of concerns as they learn different things. So you might go really deep on React, but kind of like just use a Mongo. To interact with the database, and the, the note that you brought up about sort of doing like database migrations or iterations can be really complicated. And if you have to, you know, create a new dashboard, but also touch that dashboard and make sure it connects directly to the, the SQL, uh, it can be like mind numbing. And uh, so you, you felt the pain pretty early on, uh, which is interesting because like you have such a like a deep understanding of sort of those pain points. And you've been giving this talk recently about the evolution of the Jamstack, so. Could you talk more about that and what you've been sort of going around and breaching and remote conferences and stuff like that about? Yeah, sure. So uh, I've been talking about this problem of of build friction, but I think what you are prompting in my head when you're talking about you know not wanting to worry about the the database migrations and the backend stuff and what's really really happening here if you go like the classic product manager five wise is Jamstack in some sense is a, a solution to an organizational problem like microservices is. And that organizational problem is that front-end developers now have more capabilities than they've ever had before now that JavaScript is more powerful. And they finally need their own space, their own home where they can say, this is my area where I can practice independently without having to be encumbered by the other parts of the system. And so uh, that's, I think, why you know Jamstack has been so popular and it's really resonated with a lot of folks. I, I am more a front-end developer these days, despite my my background in systems programming, that I am a backend developer. And I remember back in the day, like, you know, when Node came out, I was so excited. We can finally have the same language on the front and the back. And I was actually excited. I don't know if people remember Jaxer, which was another early attempt to do JavaScript server side. And so I think that's why there's a lot of resonance here. But I think the the thing that's been kind of caught up in the Jamstack is this very static first mentality. And I think it's great. Static is great for when it works, but it creates this build friction. So in the, the classic, you know, static version of Jamstack, it take you basically build all the pages ahead of time before it's served to the user in, in a deploy. And if you have a lot of pages, or if your pages are changing frequently, then that build time can be a source of friction. And that latter one also gets forgotten because, you know, in a, in a large, say, e-commerce organization, not only do they have a lot of products, but they also have people whose whole job it is to be constantly changing what categories, the merchandisers are changing, what categories things are in, what the copy is on a product, what different land, sets of landing pages for categories are. And there's a lot of iteration happening there. Um, or maybe they just want to throw a promo banner at the top of all their pages and they don't want to, you know, hurt the performance of their website and do it client side. So they need to change the header across every single page. And so if you have thousands or hundreds of thousands of pages, that can be a real problem. And I know, you know, the Headless Commerce Summit last year in 2020, there was one in 2021, it was something like three quarters of the the respondents were working on pages that had 10,000 pages or less. But if you like, think about large e-commerce sites or, you know, household names, these are sites that can have easily over 10,000. If you just take as a comparison, like number of products, your typical physical retail grocery store is 60,000 products, 60,000 SKUs. Online stores can be even larger. Staples is like 200,000. And it's not hard to get into the millions. I use an example. There's a B2B forklift parts company. And you'd think it's a small niche, but it's parts. So they've got 8 million SKUs. And 
on the flip side, it's not just e-commerce. So like content, if you look at folks like BuzzFeed, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, they're doing roughly 80,000 stories a year. In fact, Washington Post is 182,000 per year, the last data I looked at. And that doesn't even count their archive. So imagine if you change the header on that and everything else, or, or there's like a, a breaking news update and they need to put on the header of every single page. Do they have to rebuild all those pages? And so there's a, a question both in terms of cost and computation as well as time. And then layer on top of that, things like A-B testing, personalization, and just having to do frequent updates. It, that becomes really, really hard, especially. So that, that build friction can become really problematic. Yeah. I've chatted with um, Kyle Matthews from Gatsby and mm-hmm. some of the stuff, the computation that they had to do, even with the, the Gatsby examples and templates, but also a lot of their customers, they come to mind because uh, when you think of like any sort of customer that has the 10,000 plus pages, there's a lot of things you have to do to, you know, don't build every single page. Yep. Um, so we're seeing like a trend of these sort of the ISR, basically the acronym, yeah. uh, but incremental static regeneration. Like, what's your your thought on where the uh, the movement's going? I break it down into two sets of techniques. There's ones that I'll, I'll say are still static techniques. Yeah. So the first set is optimizing build times. So there's something called incremental builds, separate from incremental static generation. And that's just, you know, anytime there's a change, you only build the pages that changed. It's kind of the classic optimization you'd expect. There's some other things you can do, like there are static site generators that are just simply faster than others. Uh, Hugo is famously fast. There's a new one called Toast that's written in Rust. These tend to actually not be written in JavaScript, and they can be very fast. Uh, Another technique is simply to just make everything render client-side, but that has SEO problems and, and performance problems typically. So then there's this slow evolution we've had over the years towards um, dynamic techniques. And I, I like to actually say the very first one was kind of the prehistory. You know, if you, you, I follow music, right? So there's the, before there was punk, there was proto-punk. <laughs> like we look back later and we said, oh, that was proto-punk, even though nobody called it at the time. Yeah. And my favorite example of that is actually the one Phil Hawksworth did, which I'm sure you remember. Uh, the V-Lolly experiment, and he used webhooks to dynamically trigger a rebuild anytime somebody creates some user-generated content. And In this case, the user-generated content was a lollipop. But the point was, he didn't have to know all of those ahead of time at at build time. And so the next kind of evolution about a year later was when the folks at Next.js baked into the framework this thing they call incremental static generation. And they were really inspired by Stellar Validate, which was, it's a caching policy, which actually, you know, building our own CDN nodes, we'd actually been intimately familiar with. But it basically says, when a request comes in, if it's already in the cache, let me just serve something up to you. And then I'll go also fetch the request. So maybe you get a a very out-of-date version of the page or somewhat out-of-date version of the page, but everyone after you will get a fresh version. And the way incremental static generation works basically is from the user experience, they hit a page. This page has never been rendered yet, um, so it's it's fresh. The CDN will turn what's considered a placeholder page. It'll just be like those squares and those skeletons that gives you the shape of the page you're supposed to see. And under the hood, the infrastructure quickly tries to build that page content. And when it's done the placeholder page will load the JSON data in and actually display the page to the user. So it's essentially actually being client-side rendered. But anybody else who comes and visits after that 
will get the statically built version of the page if it's being served from the cache. And so what this lets you do is as your traffic comes in, you're basically being able to build out those pages. I, I say it was in the framework, even though what's in the framework is the commands you as a developer use to trigger it. Like you're setting either get static paths or get server side props, but the actual implementation is really a product of your framework and your architecture. So there's a lot of orchestration under the hood that needs to happen to be able to say on a cache miss, serve up this placeholder page. Now go build the, the page content, serve up the JSON to the client side thing that's waiting, and then store this statically rendered version separately into say something like S3 uh, so it can be served up. So it's actually now a product of your framework and your infrastructure. And so this is kind of like a crack in the Jamstack wall in the sense that we lose a couple of principles that are classically Jamstack. We lose certain things around atomicity and uh, immutability because some people are getting out-of-date versions and some are not. It's also less portable. You can't just take this thing and put it on you know, FTP server anywhere else. And so there was a, another technique uh, very similar that you know Netlify has put an RFC for called Distributed Persistent Rendering. Essentially, what distributed persistent rendering says is when a request comes in for a page that has not already been rendered. So in all these solutions, I should take a step back, let you say, let me make some of my site static and some of it, quote unquote, dynamic. And for the dynamic piece in DPR or distributed persistent rendering, it just, when the request comes in, they just generate the page content. Um, there's no placeholder page. There's no stale water validate. And that page actually, I think they want it to persist through rollbacks as well, so you can roll backwards and forwards. But under the hood, the idea is very much still the same of as traffic comes in, it's actually building out the pages that are necessary to build. We support ISG and ISR. We also have something we introduce called parallel static rendering, which is you stick a CDN in front of you know serverless server-side rendering, and you basically predictively look when a deploy happens, well, what are the highest traffic pages? Why wait for that traffic pages to come in? And on a lot of really large sites, it follows a power law. And you can say, you know, I know these are the most popular pages in terms of traffic. As soon as I deploy, start building just those. If, you know, another request comes in organically for some other page, we'll obviously build that one on demand. But in the idle time, start building out the stuff. So you kind of actually decouple the build time from the deploy time so that you can move really, really fast and not have to worry about stuff. But all of these are really very dynamic techniques. And for some folks, it's, I kind of call it like an identity crisis. You know, for a long time, Jamstack was defined as being static only. But now suddenly we've got DPR, ISR, and these other techniques that are serving HTML from dynamic, you know, server-side functions. And what is and what is not Jamstack suddenly gets a lot more gray. I mean, you, you prefaced all this with the idea of punk and like what we called protopunk, uh, even though it didn't have that name. Yeah. And I think that Jamstack perhaps were having like sort of like what the world we thought of Jamstack being with the dynamically rendered static sites, um, or sorry, static sites rendered at build time. It's now getting dynamically rendered. Uh, so now we're moving to another evolution, which I don't know if we're in like the post Jamstack area. Like I don't <laughs> think we're post Jamstack, but perhaps we're like in sort of like this sort of. Um, I know there was like a pop punk phase in the early 2000s that we went through the 2004, and then we had emo that was almost kind of like punk. But anyway, if we get into like really like split the hairs on the the music analogy, I think we're sort of in the evolution, and um, 
that I think maybe two, three, five years from now, we'll probably look back and be like, yeah, it was a fun time. Uh, I'm so glad we're here. But like during as we were figuring these things out, it was kind of like cuckoo crazy trying to figure out if this is the right way to go moving forward. And case in point, like I just, I actually completed a, a site over the weekend where I was using uh, a GraphQL database uh, or API mm-hmm. and uh, using Next.js. Mm-hmm. And I had to make a decision if I was going to get static props or if I was going to get server props. And I did both ways. And I think I ended up going with getting server props because I liked the way the data was being rendered. I know I could just throw it out on Vercel and it works. And uh, like with a bunch of magic that they're already doing as well. And uh, that's like a decision I made just at a whim on a weekend because it was a, a project that probably will die in, in the future. But I just had to make the decision so at least I could show somebody, hey, this is the working app. Who cares how the data is getting there? Yep. But there's a lot of practices and things I use to get that site up and running and consuming the GraphQL API and having the database separate that I still use from the Jamstack. I just happen to not be rendering, like building everything statically um, when I'm deploying it. Yeah, I, I'm famous for driving analogies into the ground. I really like the music one. So I'm, I'm going to try and actually hold myself back from, from doing what I habitually do. Because it's kind of like, you know, maybe Kurt Cobain, you know, era is over. And now it's like, what comes next? We're suddenly like a lost in a daze. But what's really interesting about what you, you were just talking about is, and it points to, you know, I gave this talk at the Certified Fresh events that uh, Brian Rinaldi runs. Um, where I, you know, elaborate on this point a little bit more, I think there's a new definition of Jamstack we're evolving towards. And that definition is one of really just two things for me. It's serving data from the edge and doing it with a front-end developer experience or empowerment. And so I've used this analogy before, which is I feel like at the end of this journey, the ecosystem is on. We'll come back to, you know, caching, putting a CDN in front of servers, and we'll, it's kind of like the T.S. Eliot quote, we'll know that for the first time. And it'll be the same primitives, but in new ways. So when you're doing, you know, picking between get static props or get server-side props, you're not thinking in the old ways of cache control headers. There's so much actually happening under the hood that you don't have to think about. You're up in your front-end React code, but it's actually orchestrating a ton of things under the hood for you. And that's what's new and that's what's different. The static piece is a red herring, I feel. It doesn't really matter how it gets to the CDN, whether it's statically built or it had to be rendered the first time. But what's crucial is that it's been designed such that it's served from the edge as much as possible. And if you actually take a look at the Jamstack benefits, and you just go to jamstack.org, there's performance, security, scalability, developer experience. Almost every single one of those the CDN is what enables it, or some combination of the CDN plus an improved developer experience. I sometimes have said it's made it somebody else's problem. Yeah. Like scalability and performance, it's because the CDN's handling it. And if you run your own CDN nodes, you know that's not trivial. But as a developer, front-end developer, it's scalability of front developer developers because you don't have to think about it, but somebody else is doing it. <laughs> And that's that's true for almost everything else uh, when you look at those benefits. And it just the CDN really is the underappreciated linchpin. And uh, that to me, I think, points the way to what the new definition of of Jamstack should be in the future. Um, and I I don't think it's binary. I think it's really a spectrum. Yeah. And you know, DPR and ISG might just be the tip of the iceberg of a whole set of different architectures that just try to do that, serving data from the edge in a way that front end developers love. 
And there, there could be a whole spectrum of those architectures out there. I don't know. We'll see if that really is the case. Yeah. Um, the one thing I want to touch on real quick is uh, the whole of, I don't have to worry about the, all that sort of invalidating cache and stuff like that because that's a solved problem. Yeah. It's abstracted under those functions that I don't yeah. need to dig into. Uh, but the one thing I, I think of and in the, that's actually been kind of taking over the web world, at least with the front-end web, is dark mode. Like dark mode, now understanding how to implement dark mode into a site is trivial, but back when I was doing this, like what, five years ago, we had to do so much more work to sort of figure out, you know, lighter dark mode or themes, CSS themes, yeah. uh, and actually use server-side rendering to keep that cache for, hey, Ashan's going to my site, uh, he's using this browser on this machine, he wants a different theme, he's already chosen it, so next time he comes back, he's got that theme ready to go. And now that's stuff that I don't even have to think about. Like I can set my themes and my CSS, and if someone sets it and it's good, it's in local storage, cache in the browser, and that it's not actually affecting the way I write code for my site at all, at least moving forward. Yeah, that's that's a great example. A, that you don't have to think about it, and B, it's actually a good example of something that comes up a lot and has a lot of dollar value attached to it, which is personalization. Yeah. And as we try to get Jamstack, not just on larger and larger sites, but sites that need to have personalization, you know, how are we going to make that work? That that client client side only is possible in some cases where you're doing rough segmentation. But if you're the cohort of one, it's going to get a lot harder. And the solutions that appear to be on the horizon usually involve some type of computation at the edge to figure out which version or bucket the user's in and then stitching together the right content. And there's a, a kind of deep philosophical question to ask if we're saying Jamstack is only static. Why is it okay for the edge to execute code on every request, but it's yeah. not for the origin. Yeah. And so it's like, well, if we're going to solve these problems and we really look into what Jamstack would be five years from now, I think it needs to basically embrace some form of you know dynamic uh, moving forward. Yeah, cool. I mean, this is like a super deep thought out uh, conversation. Like, uh, I'm really loving where we're, where we're taking this. I just want to ask you like one final question. Anything else like folks should be sort of looking out for and considering when thinking about the Jamstack and where it's going? Yeah, well, one thing that I also do is uh, we're very focused on performance. It's really important to uh, you know a lot of customers on our platform. In a previous company, I did as well. And uh, I had a newsletter called Core Web Vitals Newsletter. And everyone knows that faster performance typically means you know better conversion rate uh, on your website. But what's really new is Google has now been very clear about how they're going to reward traffic to performance, search engine rank. So now performance not just means better conversion rate from your existing traffic, it actually means growth, it means new revenue that you're actually probably stealing from a competitor because you know SEO can be zero-sum game. But the challenge, I think, for Jamstack and that Jamstack developers should just be aware of is that it's not a free pass on performance. Sometimes we talk about it is, um, but often when you're running without a server, JavaScript on the front end ends up replacing what your server used to do. And while not all Jamstack sites are JavaScript heavy, a lot of them are, especially those written React, Angular, Vue, and typically they're single page apps. And unfortunately, some parts of Google's core of vitals can be particularly harsh on JavaScript heavy sites. And so, you know, if you're a Jamstack developer building one of those sites, you should be armed on how to recognize and handle those issues. Thankfully, we've been hounding the Google Chrome team as have, has many others saying, you know, you're not tracking single page apps properly for certain cases. And they just, for example, rolled out a change to cumulative layout shift, which was under their metrics, which is going to be a little more forgiving to single page apps. And they've said they're going to do more improvements in the future. So I'd, I'd highly recommend folks pay attention to that. 
Awesome. Well, Sean, thanks so much for all the tips and tricks and, and storytelling as well. I would love to, to transition us into jam picks. So these things are uh, what we're jamming on. It could be music, food, tech-related as well. So everything's fair game. And uh, since you're prepared, how about you, uh, you start us off with some picks? Yeah, so I'll give you uh, two technical and one non-technical. Yep. So, you know, as you can tell, really focused on performance. And there's some really smart things being done by some uh, emerging frameworks other than React. Uh, sometimes a lot of folks just think it's React or Vue. But, you know, Svelte and SolidJS, which just got reached 1.0, are doing some very interesting things in terms of shipping less JavaScript to the server and, and baking in more fine-grained reactivity so that you don't have to have the virtual DOM taking up space and performance. And we've helped a lot of folks on the platform, you know, deal with their client-side script, doing a lot of things in terms of interacting with their TTI and stuff like that. And hopefully we'll get some of this in React. Um, I'm hopeful for React server components, but I think people should just broaden their mind and take a look at what SolidJS is doing and what Svelte is doing. We have a, a component in our platform that's a, a little debugging tool in your web page that lets you understand its cacheability. And we wrote that in Svelte in order to be as lightweight as possible, and the team really loved it. So I recommend that. The second thing on performance is I'm really excited about the lessons from AMP getting into other frameworks. So, you know, I gave a talk called What You Didn't Know About AMP by Cascadia JS a few years ago. AMP was, has been really underappreciated and I think maligned. There's a lot of technical great things in there. Um, but people were, developers were up in arms because they were forced to use AMP. But we're finally starting to see some of those lessons that the AMP team was really ahead of the curve on, uh, with signed exchanges and workerized JavaScript. So I think, that's the the second thing I'd say that's really exciting. And then in non-technical, I've been spending a lot of time on uh, reading up on health and nutrition. I think we're at the calm before the storm in a potential watershed moment. If the Apple Watch really does come out with, you know, some type of metabolic sensor or like a, a glucose sensor, I think, you know, what we've seen the tech industry go through with like a backlash, I think we might actually see the food industry go through. And uh, I've been reading a lot there and, and really interested in that and highly recommend, I think, for engineers, especially if you're working from home, like don't neglect your health. And some of the people I recommend following are, are Kevin Hall and, and Ted Naiman and Peter Atia. Um, and I think they'll appeal to, well, they appeal to me and I think some of this audience because they're doctors, but they also have technical engineering background. Um, and so I think their way of explaining things would appeal to kind of an engineering mind. Cool, yeah. Thanks for, for sharing. And uh, sure. I haven't actually looked into the whole Apple Watch and all the the rumors that folks are sort of circling around. But uh, yeah, yeah I, I have an Apple Watch myself, and uh, <laughs> that would be very intriguing if it could tell me, hey, you should probably <laughs> you know run around the block so that way that pizza you had for lunch is not going to follow you around for the next 30 years of your life. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's really fascinating because... In metabolism, it's like one of the few things that has such a short, immediate duration. Yeah. Like you can just see immediately, immediately being like one to two hours. And so when people get that feedback mechanism, it can be a powerful form of behavior change. Yeah. But maybe it's two years away. I don't know. But it'll be interesting to watch. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I've got a couple of picks and uh, I actually had some exercise related picks too as well. So I oh, great. two exercise things I've been doing. Uh, kettlebell is something I picked up. A couple months ago, back when there was like a shortage on actual free weights, uh, just weights, any sort of metal in general, back with the whole um, the blockage of the canal and everything like that. Oh, yeah. So, and the pandemic to put it on top. So, I couldn't find any free weights. Uh, I need some free weights, you know, to keep up to date with my, my fitness. And that's like my, my choice 
exercise equipment. So picked up kettlebells because you can get one kettlebell and sort of do a lot of pretty good workouts. So changed a lot of my workout into sort of swinging motions and some active. So like almost like hit like a high intensity training as well. Um, And it's kind of changed a lot. So like the other thing I couldn't do a lot of because like rain and weather is do um, cardio outside because I don't have any sort of inside cardio equipment. Also, the reason for all this is mainly because gyms were closed. Yeah. So because there's like no gym um, that I could attend for the longest time in the Bay Area, I had to kind of refigure things out. Um, and then my neighborhood was just very highly populated with people walking with masks on. So I had to learn like my running route would was a different different time of day. So for that reason, the kettlebell has been a, a godsend uh, as well as a weighted jump rope. Uh, it's something I've always done like speed ropes and stuff like that um, doing sports. Uh, in high school and college, and uh, sort of fell off that after years of being married and having kids. But now getting back into it, and I, I enjoy the weighted jump rope because yeah. same reason, you know, you only have so much time in the day, so I can get a, a really good 12-minute workout with a weighted jump rope uh, and really feel the cardio uptick and not have to feel like I'd have to be on a treadmill for, you know, an hour uh, and get that same sort of impact, not even close to the impact. I'm really curious because I actually was thinking of taking up kettlebell and uh, I'm curious, like what you'd recommend is like the best starting weights to start using and, you know, how to get started. Cause I'm, I was really concerned about like all the movement yeah. actually just like tearing something and it's felt like it was very easy to, to mess up and hurt yourself. Yeah. So you would think that like with the weight, the free weights, I always went for like a heavier, like 50 pound, 45 pounds or whatnot, just to uh, make sure I can't really buy a bunch of them. So I'll get the, like the weight that would probably have the most impact. Yeah. But the kettlebells, because there's so much movement, so you don't actually need as much weight. So as long as you're not just doing simple, like, you know, curls or anything like that, but you're doing kettle swings and then like the actual looking jumping jack stuff, you could actually get away with like, you know, the 15, 17 pounds. Uh, mine is 30 kilos, which um, I think that's about 17 pounds. So, sorry, my math is not ha- going <laughs> to happen right now. I might have did that backwards. But yeah, so that's the one I have. And I have not deviated from that weight at all. And I feel like rather than going for strength, I'm going for more of like cardio and just sort of sustainability exercises mm-hmm. and sort of changing my sort of way of life instead of trying to you know, get cut and swole. It's more of like just make sure the heart's always beating is, mm-hmm. is my goal. Is there like a, a lesson plan or a YouTuber or somebody you'd recommend for like actually like learning the movements? So I haven't really got attached to a specific YouTuber. Yeah. I know Athlean X. Yeah, Athlean X is the YouTube channel. Uh, they do more than just kettlebells. They do a lot of body strength yep. and body weight movements and stuff like that in addition to like traditional weightlifting. But they also talk about nutrition and stuff like that. So uh, he's been my go-to. Uh, if I need a kettlebell workout specifically for like the day, like... I need one arm kettlebell workouts. I'll just Google it and find the playlist. Got it uh, on YouTube. So that's been helpful. I just yeah, this usually on just in time on demand. I'll just create a workout for the week, knowing that hey, I've got like no meetings this week. I should probably integrate workouts throughout the days uh, throughout the weeks, and that's kind of what I've been doing since. Oh, very cool. Cool. And then the other thing I wanted to mention was I kind of alluded to it. Uh, I'll skip my actual TV pick and just go straight to Urkel, which is a front end, a JavaScript client to consume GraphQL. 
Uh, so if you know Apollo or Relay, Urkel's another one of those. But they've also made a lot of different decisions to like keep more best practices of GraphQL intact as far as like the GraphQL spec. Um, they also do some pretty cool things with caching. So like if you, as I mentioned, when I was trying to figure out getting static props or get server-side props, they actually have some really cool built-in functionality that I don't also have to make those decisions on the client level either, uh, which has always kind of been my... I guess my problem with GraphQL for the past years I've been using it is that caching has always kind of been hard in GraphQL, even yeah. with the clients. And uh, I feel like with Urkel, their approach has kind of just made sense to me. Uh, and maybe it's a benefit of them coming so late in this sort of evolution of GraphQL that they couldn't make those decisions and make it figure it out. But I'm loving it, and uh, just like McDonald's, and uh, I don't <laughs> think um, I'm going to be definitely using it for a bit in a couple different projects. And as I mentioned, this project I just built—it's actually it's on GitHub. It's Zora Next. It's on, under my GitHub handle, bduggy slash Zora dash Next. And I basically was building an NFT dashboard, so blockchain. Mm-hmm. Uh, was messing around with blockchain, trying to figure out and learn that myself for some videos that I'm making on YouTube. And I wanted to make it a Next.js, and I wanted to use a GraphQL API and. It checked all the boxes. They were able to throw it together in a couple weekends. Well, we've we've actually heard that about GraphQL a lot, and uh, we've actually had to make some changes to the platform in order to allow caching of GraphQL uh, as well, because it's using Post, and so much of internet ar- yeah. infrastructure just assumed if it's GET, that's the only thing cacheable. If it's Post, it's not. Yeah, we've had to do a lot to help customers do that on on our platform. So I'll definitely check that out. Cool. And folks, uh, hopefully check out Sean's work uh, and all the articles that you throw out there as well as Layer Zero. And uh, keep spreading the jam. That's all the time we have for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. 